I can take care of it. You want to take care of it? Yeah. Good morning. All right. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 4. And I just want to do a couple things real quickly again. I want to um, take uh, a moment to just kind of give you a quick little update so you're aware on our facilities. We've been doing a lot of upkeep. And so you'll notice we had to rebuild a deck out here and some kind of delayed maintenance pretty soon. Uh, the church, uh, at the end of the month, will be getting a complete makeover uh, on paint. We're repainting the entire church, something that has been needed to be done for quite a while. Uh, and those of you who, who don't like change, we would appreciate your graciousness. And uh, don't email the office about the change of color. Okay? Okay. No matter what we do, someone's not going to like what we do. You know what I'm saying? So just remember the color of the church doesn't change the power of Jesus. Um, <laughs> Sean's back. Welcome back from Idaho, Sean. Uh, the other thing I want to make you aware of is as the summer months have increased, uh, the amount of benevolence that's been needed in the church has gone up. We do help people in the community as much as we possibly can. Uh, with gas cards, grocery cards, and, and other financial means. We help those in the church first and foremost, uh, but then we are helping those in the community. I just want to make a couple uh, points uh, in regards to that. One, on the tithe envelope that we do have in the front pocket of your seat, there's a box there that says Deacon's Fund. That is a fund that we use for benevolence and for helping people out. So if you want to help ensure that we're able to continue to take care of people, and, and that's a good place to put your funds uh, or your giving if you'd like. Uh, in addition to that, we have a food pantry. We're one of the only places in the community that has a food pantry. Uh, and we are in need of restocking that up. It's getting kind of low because of the amount, again, of traffic that we're getting throughout the week. I will tell you uh, that if you want to donate something, please reach out to Brad because we don't want green beans because nobody takes them. Okay? Right, Brad? What was Top ramen... Chi, uh, chili. I know there's vegetarians in the room, but when you're homeless, you don't want vegetarian food. You want, you want chili. Yeah, SpaghettiOs. Uh, so we do have kind of requirements there. Otherwise, it just kind of sits. So I want to make you aware of that as well. Uh, and then yesterday, we had a great time for the teen challenge graduates here yesterday. These are guys that have gone through at least a two-year program uh, to overcome addiction, uh, heroin, uh, methamphetamines, alcohol, you name it. Uh, and I was able to speak at that. It was a wonderful time together. They did a raffle. And I don't know how many of you know Nancy Porges, but Nancy won almost everything in the raffle. Uh, Nancy won two bicycles. <laughs> she won both the bicycles. And then she gave them away. I was a recipient of one of them for one of my kids. So thankful for that. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we have a Awana program here at our church, which helps kids walk through Scripture and learn Scripture. And it's a thriving uh, community of kids and leaders and it's kind of a big deal every now and then one of these or two of these or three of these kids walk away with a pretty incredible award. And so we're going to present that award uh, this morning. And so I'm going to ask Ben and Jenny to come up real quickly and, uh, and give their, uh, their hurrah to Beckham. Good morning, church. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Ben. I'm the uh, Awana ministry director here at Sierra Bible Church. Um, if, uh, if you have kids or if you like kids and you're looking for a place to get plugged in and serve, um, we may have a great opportunity for you. So get in touch with me sometime if that interests you. 
A couple weeks ago, we uh, handed out our end-of-year awards to most of our clubbers. There's almost 90 of them. Um, but we had one come through this year that is kind of a big deal. So we wanted to share that presentation with you guys. So, uh, Beckham, would you please grab your folks and come on up here? He's so excited to be on stage, I can tell. In case you guys aren't aware, AWANA is actually an acronym, and it stands for Approved Workmen Are Not Ashamed. So it's AWANA, not AWANAs, it's AWANA. Um, and it comes out of 2 Timothy 2.15, and I'm not as good at memorizing as others are. And that is, um, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so um, I'm going to brag a little bit about what Beckham's done because he's actually been in the Iwana program since he was a wee lad. And he went through Cubbies, which is our pre-K. In Cubbies, they actually do two-year program. And during those two years, they recite and learn 40 verses. In Sparks, it is uh, kindergarten first and second. They learn 93 verses over those three years. In TNT, which is third, fourth, and fifth grade, they learn 103 verses. They will recite those. In Trek, which is our junior high, that is sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, they do 133 verses, plus they read the entire New Testament and summarize each of those 27 books. So it is no small feat when you get to this, which we call the Meritorious Award. Beckham is close He's to his Citation Award, which is the end of the entire program. At the end of the entire program, once you graduate from um, high school, if you've completed it, it's a total of 587 verses. You have also completed every single book every year, and you have um, read through and summarized every single book of the Bible. So it is an amazing journey. Beckham is partly there. He's got four more years, but for today, we are going to congratulate him on finishing the first part. And Beckham, this is the Meritorious Award for you. Congratulations. Congratulations. Dangerous up here. Can I pray for you? All right. We're going to call you Pastor Beckham here if you keep it up. Lord, thank you so much uh, for Beckham and his dedication. Thank you for his parents' dedication as well. Uh, I pray, Lord, that over the next four years, you would continue to root him in your word and that you would continue to help him to thrive in a relationship with you and that he would be bold against the culture and the temptations that will come his way and that you'd keep his life pure. And uh, Lord, that you would allow him to know you're with him in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you guys. You can sit now. <laughs> okay, Mark chapter 4. Um, Mark chapter 4. If, uh, if you have the ability this morning, the withal and the heart. Would you stand with me as we read from these verses, chapter 4, verse 35. Uh, this is a smaller segment, a much smaller segment than the one I tackled last week. Uh, but I think there is enough in here uh, that is worthy to spend the rest of our time together in. Starting in verse 35 of chapter 4, uh, 
it reads this way. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But when he was, but he was, a, was in the stern, that is the back of the ship, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care we are perishing? And he woke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Lord, I pray that you would minister to us in this passage, that you would speak to our hearts, and that they would be calm as the sea is made calm in this piece of Scripture, that we would hear from you and see you clearly. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated, please. The previous section in chapter 4 Jesus begins what we call his parabolic ministry. That is that his teaching becomes a little less direct and he begins to teach in such a way that questions inside of those who are listening start to arise. What is the deeper meaning of these everyday occurrences? What is it that Jesus is trying to say? The parables, in fact, if you look at them, the word kingdom arises multiple times. Jesus in his parables is trying to establish the reality that a new kingdom is at hand. And that kingdom is personified in the person, the work, and the words of Jesus. The kingdom is here, and the king is now. And up into this portion, Jesus has been teaching all day, in fact. And upon, after the conclusion of all of this teaching and communicating, he is sitting on this boat. Uh, if you remember, the crowds suppressed around him, and he needs this space, so he's on the Sea of Galilee, a lake that is probably about 12 miles wide, eight miles in length, something in those dimensions. It's a harp-shaped lake. Jesus sat out there. He sat in the boat as a rabbi would sit. Teaching is now to start. After the conclusion, it tells us in the text that evening has come. And so Jesus then says, he directs, let us go to the other side. And so he does. They do. Now, this particular lake, the Sea of Galilee, is known even to this day for its radical, uh, very harsh, very violent storms that could come at any given moment. In fact, my reading this week, I, I came across one story in the 1990s that these waves in the Sea of Galilee were as high as 10 feet Right? All of you know those kind of crazy folk that when a particular storm enters into Lake Tahoe, they rush down to pretend that they can surf in said waves. Hey. These waves are quite amazing at times. The reason being, well, 30 miles to the north sits Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet, almost 10,000 feet high. The Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is, by contrast, almost 700 feet below sea level. 
The cold air comes down from those mountains, meeting the hot air of the sea. They mingle and create these very, very violent storms. And nature's a big deal in the Bible. In fact, throughout the Bible, uh, we are told that God is the only one. God is the only one who controls the power of nature itself. There are other, other ancient cultures that have said the same kind of things, that only a deity can control the power of nature. I want to first express to you here the title of my message this morning. Now, the title is simply Faith or Fear in the Storms of Life. I think this particular passage teaches us how one should respond to our trials and our tribulations. Even more so, I think it teaches us who Jesus is in our trials and tribulations. Let me ask a question. How do you respond when things get out of control in your life? First of all, you've heard me say before, control is an illusion. <laughs> no one's really in control. I'll give you a couple examples. Here's, here's kind of a silly one. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, though I don't fully want to confess, I think my wife is a better driver than I am. I don't appreciate those remarks. <laughs> Yet, when I am in the passenger seat, I do not feel very comfortable. I do not feel very safe. Therefore, I typically drive. Even when we go down to Southern California, my wife will say, you want to share the ride? You want me to drive halfway? To which I go, no, I'm good. But in reality, I'm like, mm-mm. I can't sleep when she drives because I'm no longer in control. I can give you another illustration. Almost 10 years ago, my wife and I drove down to Southern California to attend a wedding of a young girl that had grown up in our youth group. It was to be a time of joy, a time of celebration. On the evening of the wedding, my wife and I, who were staying with uh, her parents, my in-laws, her father and I decided to go see a movie. I can't remember what the movie was, but I do clearly remember sitting in the chairs of the theater during the previews and getting a phone call to which normally I would not answer, but for some reason, I decided to pick up the phone while the previews were going on. On the other line was my mother, panicked, distraught. I could barely understand the words coming out of her mouth, but it became really clear she was calling to let me know my father had suddenly died in a race car accident in Fernley, Nevada. I exited the theater along with my father-in-law. I sat down in the mall. I remember literally in front of everyone trying to figure out what had happened in disbelief, in despair, not thinking that this could actually be a reality. The next day, there was no wedding for my wife and I to go to. Surely not. We had to get back into the car, drive back to Truckee, California, and deal with the fallout of a sudden death. It is moments like that that you realize Man has no control. There is nothing I can do to change the situation. I cannot bring my father back. I cannot heal the pains and the wounds. I cannot handle even ultimately the fallout of the financial side of all that this entails. And so I hung to Christ in that moment, praying and hoping that he would carry me through this particular storm. 
How in the world will I get to the other side? How will my mom get to the other side and my two young sisters get to the other side? Is Christ powerful in the moment or not? Where is he? Is a question that is often asked in such trial and tribulation. Many people don't believe in God because of the storms of life, because of death and despair. And yet we see in this moment the author making an intentional, intentional remarks to let us know that Jesus' power in, is, is very real in this particular moment. Take note of the details of the passage. They're here on purpose. Some of them serve to not thrust the, the story forward at all. And yet the author, which is Mark, who is writing on behalf of Peter, has said these things. Verse 35, take note. Evening had come. Jesus had been teaching all throughout the day. Finally, as the conclusion of the day, he gets into the boat and he goes. Verse 35, the words of Jesus are important. Let us go across. Take note of Jesus' leadership here. This is under his directive. This is a verb connotating urgency. We have to go. Why? Because Jesus has a divine appointment on the other side. Next week, we'll see that divine appointment. There is a demonic man on the other side. Verse 36, he went in just as he was. Why is this important here? Well, it's just literally stating that he was in the boat teaching just as he was. He didn't get out of the boat. He just went back out into the sea. No, there's also other boats with him. A detail which is important, showing that these boats weren't very large, and not all of the disciples fit into one boat. The word that's used here, kind of a fun word, a flotilla. That's the word. It just literally means a fleet of ships. Those wishing to remain with Jesus and to continue to follow him. Verse 38 gives us the detail that in the middle of such a radical storm, Jesus is in the stern, the back of the ship. And what is he doing in the violent storm? He's asleep. This makes sense. But then it adds another detail. He was asleep on a pillow. What is a pillow doing in a boat? Now, many authors believe that the pillow was probably for the captain of the ship, that while he was steering, the captain would sit on the ship, and quite possibly the captain gave this pillow to Jesus so that he could rest. Verse 38 and verse 41 show us a confession of a great amount of, uh, of fear and a lack of faith on behalf of the disciples. Why are these Little details important, details that don't thrust the story forward. They're details for us to realize that this is a real historical moment amongst real historical men in a real historical storm. This actually happened. This is the author giving us his eyewitness details. Anybody who's ever gone through such tragedy knows that there's teeny little memories, teeny little sensations that bring you back to the moment that bring you back to the pain. It took years for me not to drive along Glenshire Drive and not have a sudden memory because of certain scenery in the moment of my dad's passing where I would not start to tear up on that drive thinking about my father. And even now, every now and then, a memory, a smell will pop in and remind me of my father, remind me of that pain. This is what is happening here from Peter's first account of witness. He's telling Mark, I saw a pillow. We were embarrassed and we had fear. Jesus was in the back of the boat. What is all this helping us to understand? 
Jesus is present in your trial and tribulation, in your historical moment, in your historical pain, in your historical storm. Jesus is letting us know through this passage that he is not far off. He is not distant. He's in the boat with you. Again, to quote the great C.S. Lewis, we all love him, yes? Some of you are familiar with this quote. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains. He literally goes on to say in the quote that God uses our suffering, he uses our hardships, to use the language of the text, he uses storms in our life to be a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Surely we understand that when everything is going well, we are okay at giving thanks to God, but when things get difficult, we shout for his help, do we not? I mean, how many of us are guilty of that reality? Well, Peter, who wrote this account, actually adds uh, to this reality in his writings of First Peter. And in chapter 4, he literally says in verse 12, Beloved, you of faith, you, O Christian, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share of Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What is Peter saying? He's saying, first of all, you should not be shocked or dismayed that there are storms in life, for that surely is the case. You know it's a fallen world. However, if you will keep your eyes on the Christ in the moment, he will use the said storm to show you something about his glory. Part of that glory surely is that he is the king of the storm. He is the king of salvation. He is the king of the church. We see his power. He speaks and it becomes calm. And yet we also encounter in this passage the complete humanity of Jesus. His power is fully manifested in this passage but so is his humanity for he has been teaching all day he's been preaching he's been counseling he's been answering questions to weary souls and he now at this moment he needs freedom and solitude from the crowds so what is he doing after his preaching session the same thing i do every sunday afternoon he climbs into the back of a ship probably pulls a tarp over himself and he passes out just so you know, in a few hours, there will be a sudden but very expected crash for me. I know it's coming, and I know it will be between somewhere between 12 and 2 p.m. I will be fine until one of those moments hit, and all of a sudden, my eyes will become heavy. My brain will begin to fog. I will be unable to answer questions for my wife or my chi children. I will climb under the couch. I will turn on an episode of The Office, and I'll pull a blanket over my head, and I'll be gone for at least two hours. Sometimes that tiredness and that exhaustion creep into my Monday. For surely when one pours himself out in his humanity, his humanity gets tired. Jesus, who is 100% man and 100% God in this moment, he is tired. He is exhausted. We see this throughout all of Scripture. There are times we see Jesus is hungry. We see in the shortest verse of the Bible that he wept. He cries. He gets weary. And, of course, we know in his humanity he tasted the death that all of mankind deserves to die. Why is this piece so important in the power of Jesus and your struggle and your travail and your storm? It's important because this is the Jesus who understands your pain. He has been there. He has walked through it. As scripture tells us that God allowed him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf 
that we become the righteousness of God. He has tasted death. He has tasted despair. Or Hebrews says to us, we do not have a priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tested in every way and is without sin. This is why I have never fully understand, understood or understand the, the grip of the Catholic Church. A priest who has not been married and has not walked through life and has isolated himself in his ivory tower as if he can understand or sympathize with man's sins. This surely is not the one that we serve. This surely is not the one that we've given our lives to. Jesus has tasted all of man's sin, guilt, and shame. And my friends, in the middle of the storm of whatever your life may bring you, Jesus gets it. But he's at peace in the storm. This had to have been a radical storm. As we segue in contrast, we see Jesus is asleep in the stern. And then in contrast, we see panic and confusion in the power of the storm by the disciples. Well, this is quite interesting because if you remember, who are the disciples? Professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They knew of the sudden storms of the lake. They knew what the lake was capable of. This shows to, 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 it serves to show us that here in the moment that these men must have realized this is quite a storm. We have to read this and see this storm is, is more radical than probably anything they've ever encountered. They had to have been quite amazed at the waves as they were breaking in. For as they arise, Jesus, and they wake him in his slumber. What is it that they say? Jesus, we're perishing. Translation, we're dying right now. Death is here. This is the response. This is the end of the world, Jesus. This moment, they're here and wondering the next question, verse 38. Don't you care? What do they say in their trial? Don't you love us? Another way to say it, if you really loved us, why would you allow this to happen to me? Don't you care about me? Where are you? Basically, what these disciples are saying, Jesus, in our greatest hour of need, you are asleep because you must not care about our souls. And if you cared about us, our boat would not be sinking. Does this not cut to the heart of every believer that's gone through any kind of struggle? Lord, where are you? Are you asleep? There was those times and have been times all throughout my ministry career where I have wondered, God, where are you in the moment and where are you in the pain? And in those moments, I, I have been able to see Christ show up. Not all can see him in those moments, however. Just as these disciples in their panic, in their despair, though they are professional fishermen, they are wrestling and they are wondering, who is this Jesus but I think the author, Mark, has added a little golden nugget here for us to hang our hat on. Verse 38, they call him teacher. Though they question, though they worry, though they wonder, they still have the withal to call him a teacher. And I think the author here, whether it was Peter or Mark, has added this, this language for us to see that in the moment, God is using this for the benefit of his people. That he indeed is teaching us something. Now, I don't believe that all trials and tribulations are in any way because of God's punishment or because of 
you deserve it or what have you, but, but I can tell you, and I've shared this with other leaders, I've shared this with the staff, I honestly am not sure that I could pastor Sierra Bible Church if it had not been for the passing of my father. I don't think he decreed that to say, well, your dad must die so you can do ministry. But in his providence and in his ordination, he has allowed that passing to make me a more compassionate man, a more understanding man, a man who understands that there are situations in life you just simply cannot control, no matter what they may be. Jesus expresses in the next segment here his supreme power, and he begins to answer the question of who Jesus is in the storm. How does Jesus respond to this panic, this disbelief? Jesus arises in verse 39, and he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the sea, and he just says, peace, be still. That word, be still, interestingly enough, it's the exact same original Greek in Mark 1, 25 where Jesus tells the demonic man, the demon inside that man, be muzzled, be still, be silent. This is Jesus connecting us back to this moment. The storm must be silent, just as the demon-possessed man must be silent. One may even ask the question, is this storm, is this situation demonic? Is it instigated by the enemy? Or is it just nature's course? The text doesn't make it clear, but I think we can at least investigate to some degree, and I think we would all wonder to some degree that in life struggles, are they demonic, or are they natural, or why are they occurring? It doesn't matter. The answer's not given, because whether it's demonic or natural, Jesus is king over both. And just as a father would speak to a disobedient child, Jesus says, be quiet, stay quiet. Or translated another way, shut up. <laughs> Any parent ever said that to their kids? Be still, obey your master. The result, or tornado-type storm, sinking the boats in the middle of the sea. A historical event, one in which these professional men feel as they're going to die after Jesus speaks, who is the king of all. You could hear a pin drop. The biblical language that's used here, if you look, he says there was a great calm, a dead calm. No one wants to confess. They probably paid too much attention to the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. But as it was stated in one of the depositions, this would be called a mega calm. Some of you will get that connection. Some of you obviously do not. <laughs> this is the perfect perfect setting for one to go wake surfing, a perfect setting for one to play in the water on a boat. This is glass-like conditions. The wind has ceased. The storm has ceased. Jesus's incomparable power has been placed on display. 
Remember, the ancient cultures and the Jews believed no one could control nature except for God alone. This is God making a declaration. Jesus and God are the same. Take note here. I think it's important. There's no Harry Potter sorcery here. There's no waving of a wand. There's no incantation. There's no Jesus calling on a higher power to calm the waves. No, this is Jesus stating, I am the higher power. I don't just have power, I am power. And anyone else who has power, including nature itself, it's on loan. I give it to them as I see fit. But only Christ has the ultimate power. Only Jesus is the one who can calm the storm. And the storm in your heart, the storm in your trial or tribulation, and ultimately the storm of death and sin. Man here is helpless before God's creation, but God is in control of it. Can we not relate to this as truckyites? Right? You cannot control whether a tree falls down or not. If it decides to snow eight feet in overnight, there's nothing you can do about it. One of my favorite things to do is, is to be on those little community pages, you know? Because we've had several, several folks, some of you are here this morning, and we're very glad that you're here, but you've moved from the Bay Area, and, and you get on said community page, and you ask all kinds of great community questions. <laughs> the last two years have been very entertaining. <laughs> Who removes my berm? Ha! <laughs> You do. <laughs> when do they move the snow off of the roads? Why is it taking them so long? Because there's a lot of snow. Why is I 80 shut down? So you don't die. <laughs> we live in an area where truly we see the power of, of nature and how radical, dramatic, and even, even, even deathly it can be. And Jesus is the one who calms it all. Job literally states of God that God is the one who has set the borders between the cloud and the sea, between day and night, between land and the depths of the oceans, and that he and he alone knows where the storehouses of snow is, that he controls the torrents of rain and thunders to come, and that he and he alone provides life for all. This is Jesus in the boat with an authority and a power that has been seen by no other and then what does Jesus do? He has directed his attention to nature itself, maybe even the demonic force. He has rebuked it. He has muzzled it. And then he takes his attention, and where does he go? His gaze turns from nature to his men. He turns his face away, back from where it is now calm, into the torrents of these men's hearts. And likewise, Jesus is taking his face and he's setting his gaze upon you as the church this morning. And he's asking two questions that all of us must answer today. Why are you fearful and where is your faith? The word fearful literally means cowardly timid. Throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark, you will see Jesus continues to ask his disciples this question. Are you without understanding? Chapter 7, verse 18. Chapter 8, 17, are you yet to perceive or understand? Chapter 8, 21, do you not understand? Chapter 8, 33, why are you not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man? 
and 919, why are you so faithless? They will continue to struggle understanding about their faith, understanding about their fear until the literal death and the literal resurrection of this powerful king. May we now turn Christ's eyes towards our hearts and answer the questions if we can. Why are you fearful? And where is your faith? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 25, don't be anxious about your life. I mean, if you look at nature itself as comparison, look at how the birds are adorned and they're taken care of. Look at how the flowers bloom. And aren't you more important than those things, Jesus says? So he says, don't worry about tomorrow and quit stressing about yesterday. Today is today and Jesus is with you right now in the boat. Then there's a third question. It's not asked by Jesus. The first two questions are Jesus looking to the church, looking to his men. Where is your faith? Is it upon the object of Jesus or somewhere else? The disciples asked the third question. We have to ask it as well. And so does every generation and every person that's ever lived on earth. Who in the world is this guy? Who is this man that even the seas obey him? And what's interesting enough, the language that is used in the beginning of the passage is the storm was crashing in and they were crying, we're going to die. They have a certain kind of fear. But at the end here, notice they're fearful again. But there's an emphasis. They're very, very, very fearful. Their fear has increased. Jesus has calmed the storm. They realize that they cannot control the storm. And you know what, my friends? They now realize they cannot control the Christ. The implications of this, Jesus is who Jesus is, not who you want him to be. You cannot change his identity. You cannot control him. He is not tame, as C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis likens the Christ to the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. He is powerful, but you cannot put a collar on him. You have to allow him to be who he is. Who is he to you? Who is the Christ to you? Now, as we conclude... Jesus reveals his identity in the most subtle of ways in this particular passage. It's quite amazing. This, one, this is one of the reasons why I absolutely love what I get to do as a pastor. Because if, if I had not studied and I had not dug and I had not read and I had not prayed through, I would have missed one of the greatest implications of this passage. Jesus, at this point, if we're really being honest and looking and, and connecting everything that is in the Old Testament to Jesus, for Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, one has to ask, what in the world is Jesus doing here in regards to pointing back to the Old Testament? And to do that, my friends, we go back to one of the greatest books, one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Jonah. The similarities between these two pieces of, of work are quite interesting and, and, and divine, to say the least. If you remember, Jonah was the prophet who was to go to Nineveh, but he disobeyed God, and he got in a boat, just as Jesus got in the boat. Jesus and Jonah, both in a boat. Both boats in the stories are overtaken by a storm, and both the sailors are fearful for their lives. In fact, the same Greek word is used that they are perishing. They're going to die. 
In both stories, Jonah and Jesus are asleep. Jonah in the hole of the ship, Jesus in the stern. Also in both stories, the sailors tell Jesus and Jonah, wake up and do something. And in both stories, the storm is made miraculously calm. In addition to that, the sailors and Jonah become more fearful at the solution, just as the disciples became more fearful at the solution of Jesus. Once you see the similarities, one has to ask, what in the world is Mark trying to communicate? What is Peter trying to say? What is the Spirit trying to say to us? What is the connection? Well, if you remember, there is one major difference. In order for the sailors to be saved on the boat in Jonah, Jonah stated, hurl me into the sea. Throw me overboard. The storm is because of me. Literally, Jonah's words, if I die, you will be saved. Later, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus would make the connection even deeper. He would say, for just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. What is the connection? That ultimately, Jesus is the better Jonah. And though he was not thrown into the literal sea in this passage, he's pointing to the reality that he will, be so, he will be thrown overboard into the literal ocean of sin, death, guilt, and shame on our behalf. He's pointing to the disciples, this may be one kind of storm for you now, but my friends, I will calm the storm of eternal life in your soul. But I must be thrown overboard onto the cross and be drowned by the wrath that is called the cup of God's wrath. So on our behalf, Jesus is letting us know that he will not abandon us in the ultimate storm. What makes you think he would abandon you in your little storms? Where is your faith? Why are you fearful? The greater king has come on our behalf and has been drowned for us that we could breathe the new life of the Holy Spirit and walk in salvation and grace. And I think there's something important that we also need to see. Jesus still saved the disciples in the boat even though their faith was small. It's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. And the object of our faith is so powerful beyond imagination. And may I just speak to you here in this moment and ask for the words of Christ to go over the ocean of your heart and that you would hear the same words he spoke to the ocean. Be still. Fear not. Rest in me. He is the whole of the ship that we go into and we, like Christ, can take our pillow and we can rest well because our salvation is secure in the one that is better than Jonah. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I can't help but wonder what our lives would look like if we had this kind of assurance. And yet we know that in life we will have moments just like the disciples. Where are you? How come this is happening? But we trust you in it. 
we know that you will carry us to the other side. And even in the travail of this life, we know that you'll carry us through as needed. And then on the other end, as we will see in chapter 5, there's still more ministry to be done. So Lord, may we have greater faith in you. May we allow your words to be over us, to still our hearts and to calm our souls. And may we trust you today for whatever troubles it has and not wrestle with the anxiety of tomorrow. For today you are with us. And we trust you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.